millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Freddie. I'm Rachel. And I'm Zoe. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This is an episode we like to call You Ask Us. Hello, I'm Freddie Hayward, political correspondent at the New Statesman, and joining me in the studio, I have Rachel Cunliffe, associate political editor, and Zoe Grunewald, policy and politics correspondent, who have been digging around in our virtual mailbag and have each brought a question. Zoe, you go first. What have you got? Okay, so this is from Scott, who writes... Lisa Nandy seems like a talented political communicator and a loyal member of the shadow cabinet. So why has Keir Starmer demoted her? What is their working relationship like behind the scenes? Yeah, so we had the big Labour reshuffle on Monday. It's been expected for a long time. We've had lots of briefings about it in the past six months or so. The big headline change was that Angela Rayner, uh, the deputy leader of the party, has basically taken over uh, Lisa Nandy's role as, as shadow levelling up secretary, which is in effect a massive demotion for Lisa Nandy, who went to international development minister, which in effect doesn't have a, a ministry, a, a department at the moment, because that was scrapped under the Foreign Office and uh, Development Office merger back in 2020. So what you've seen basically is Lisa Nandy go from shadow foreign secretary in the first um, shadow cabinet in, back in 2020 when Keir Starmer was first elected to uh, not being a fully-fledged uh, shadow cabinet minister. Yeah, so there are some rumours, I think Kevin Maguire wrote for us this week, that this was a, a gamble that Keir Starmer took, expecting her not to accept the demotion, to sort of step back entirely. We also had uh, Rosina Allen Khan. Um, who was shadow minister for mental health, which was a full cabinet position. And when it became clear that that position was going to be made a non-cabinet role, she stepped down. So there, there were sort of an argument that that's what Keir Starmer expected Lisa Nandy to do, to say, I'm not taking that and to quit entirely. She she hasn't. She's she stayed and so she has that development minister role. Um, and I think what you look at when you see the the cabinet reshuffle as a whole is this is the strategy of someone who feels very confident in keeping his party together, that the poll ratings for Labour for Keir Starmer have improved to such a degree that he doesn't feel the need to keep everyone happy, keep everyone on side. He can afford to upset some people. And one of those people is Lisa Nandy, who sort of represents the soft left of the party. Obviously, when she was shadow foreign secretary, that was just after the the leadership election, um, when she 
was one of the contenders and it was about bringing people together and showing that just because she ran against Keir Starmer that doesn't mean he wouldn't put her in the cabinet obviously a lot has changed in three years and he doesn't feel the the need to do that anymore I think there was a sense as well that leveling up is such a it's a really interesting brief because it's obviously a very new brief, but it touches on so many aspects of British society. You've got social mobility, housing, obviously massive, regional inequality. And this, these are all areas where the Tories should be really, really vulnerable. And there was a sense, I guess, that Lisa Nandy was not making as much of that opportunity as she could have done, whereas Angela Rayner nice meaty brief for her to get her her teeth sunk into yeah i mean this is a big question whether labor will stick with the leveling up agenda i mean what do you think zoe i think that they will because for for the labor and the conservatives the red wall especially is such a big part of the base that they're trying to woo and we saw when um, boris johnson won the election back in 2019 part of that was on his kind of red wall offering they see it as something quite substantial something that the electorate liked the sound of um, and as we're seeing you know in the in the political and policy backdrop a lot of sort of crumbling public services and a lot of um, increases in inequalities across regions i think it would be a good sell to many people to hear that labor are really taking serious um, the leveling up agenda gender and developing those areas. Just to go back to uh, Lisa Nandy, I mean, we saw a lot of talk for a long time about a potential label reshuffle. And uh, any talk about reshuffles make people incredibly nervous. You get a lot of these briefings and counter briefings that come out. And, and some of the briefings we saw was that Lisa Nandy was going to be moved from her post, partly for what you said, Rachel, that um, they felt that she wasn't making the most out of her brief, but also because there was this talk that maybe she was being disloyal to Keir Starmer. And I think that's something that um, people were talking a lot about. And people are still asking now, was she in some way being punished? Is that why she was, she was dropped from her post. I think when you look at what Nandy did for the levelling up brief, you know, she actually had one of the best offerings in terms of what uh, Labour could do, which would be radical or radical leaning reform without spending too much money. So um, in the housing brief, she pledged planning reform. She was talking about um, taking advantage of some of the proposals in the Gordon Brown Commission for devolution. These were all things Labour could do to create real change, but without spending a great deal of money. Um, but the question is, was she making the most of that? Was she talking about it enough? Was she selling it to the public? And I think some people would, would suggest that she wasn't. Whether Rayner will do that and carry on with those proposals is a, is a whole new question. But I think those things are, are really important for Labour because it's their best way of selling their vision, which is that Labour can change things, but without spending a great deal of money. Yeah, definitely. I'd completely agree that their housing policy and their devolution policy are the two ways in which they think they can both pursue economic growth and also not spend much money. Just on the levelling up point, I'm, I don't think Labour has spoken that much at all. Anyone really has spoken about um, levelling up that much in the past six months. We had Keir Starmer's big take back control speech uh, in January. Uh, that was when they set out their plans to streamline the devolution process. I don't think Lisa Nandy was even there. She, I, I remember asking her team at the time, I think she, they said she had other commitments. So I don't think she's been the face of the housing and levelling up policy for a very long time. Um, and the other thing worth noting on levelling up is that it doesn't really feature in the five uh, missions, national missions that are going to guide Labour's policy uh, in their manifesto and also in government. Neither does housing. So... The question I pose a few times in, in Morning Call is, has Labour's levelling up policy basically become a combination of their devolution package and their green prosperity plan? Because it strikes me that those are the two things that um, address issues of regional inequality. Um, 
but they're also speaking about a lot of leveling up, which I think is a, a shame because I do think it got some traction in the, the past two or three years, even if at the start not many people knew what it was. So they reoriented towards these two priorities, which are less focused on regional inequality, but speak to uh, similar themes. The other thing that the reshuffle has done, though, it's not just about Lisa Nandy. It's also about finding a role for Angela Rayner that enabled her to move out of the sort of command centre of Keir Starmer's yeah. cabinet. This but, is the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, yeah. Yeah, um, but to not look like a demotion. So obviously she's deputy leader, that's an elected position. He can't get rid of her entirely. The last time that he tried to demote her uh, in 2021, she ended up basically with the promotion, with with more things in, in, in her brief. So I think the starting point for this reshuffle was what can you give Angela Rayner that doesn't look like a demotion that she will accept and uh, be able to capitalise on the opportunities of without um, causing sort of more, more upset uh, while moving her kind of outside of that decision-making centre the decision was was made that that leveling up was a good a good opportunity for her to do that and obviously it gives her her own sort of contained platform um which then meant you had to move somebody out of that so i think like there there might there may have been issues with with lisa and andy was she making the most of the brief or or not but i think the starting point was we need to solve this issue, which is the Angela Rayner issue, and then let's reshuffle everyone else around that. Yeah, and Pat McFadden took over Angela Rayner's role as Shadow Chancellor to the Duchy of Lancaster. Pat McFadden, Tony Blair's former political secretary, uh, quite a well-respected figure within the party, but very much from that Blairite tradition. Uh, so he's going to be the sort of Oliver Dowden version, if they do get into power, managing those Whitehall relationships and trying to drive... Um, policy through the cabinet office. Yeah, it's, it's a weird role, isn't it, Chancellor? Yeah. Like, like I said, it's kind of a managing director style role in the cabinet that doesn't have a sort of specific set of issues, but oversees the whole agenda. Yeah, it basically depends what the Prime Minister gives uh, to their Chancellor, the Duchy of Lancaster. Oliver Dowden, very trusted um, um, ally of Rishi Sunak, has been given quite a lot, economic security, um, he's looking at Whitehall machinery, all these things. Michael Gove's done the position in the past as well, so it can be a really important uh, role, but it sort of depends on how much power the, the Prime Minister gives out. Hmm. I think um, it's it's easy to see uh, Lisa Nandy's demotion as a sort of casualty of this this attempt from Starmer to move his um, his team into a more sort of a Blairite um, centrism um, and away a little bit from the influence of the soft left. And I think you you could easily argue that Lisa Nandy's demotion is just almost collateral damage in that Rayner was, he wanted to keep Rayner there. You know, she's a good face for the union. She's popular. In some ways, she serves a lot of what Nandy serves as well. And in doing so, he had to, you know, make room, give Rayner that brief and, and, and demote Nandy. After the break, Rachel will introduce her question. Give us a clue. Yes, we will be crystal ball gazing into what Labour might do after it wins an election based on the promotions and demotions seen in the shadow cabinet reshuffle. If you're subscribed to the New Statesman, you can get all of our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it both on iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back after this. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
Okay, Rachel, what's your question? So this question is from Lizzie. It's a continuation, actually, of what we were discussing a moment ago. Lizzie asks, how does the promotion of the most right-wing MPs in the Labour Party and the demotion of most of the soft left fit with the thesis that Starmer will move left once in office? I don't think it, it does fit. I don't think... Keir Starmer will move left once he gets into office. What he will will have to do, though, is probably, as we've discussed before, raise taxes or increase borrowing. That's what you're going to see. I do think this is basically uh, the completion, you could say, of Keir Starmer's transition from that soft left uh, politician that won the leadership back in 2020 to this more, you could call it pragmatic, but I think that's... Uh, diluting what it is, you could it's more centrist, uh, Blairite politician that's much more comfortable on the right of the party, and he's promoted people like Peter Kyle, like Pat McFadden, as we talked about earlier. Liz Kendall, that, Liz was, that Kendall. was a shock. I came back from holiday and I saw Liz Kendall was in the shadow cabinet. That was a, a, a massive shock. She obviously ran for the leadership back in 2015 and got about. 4.5% uh, of the vote. On Liz Kendall, it's worth noting that Morgan McSweeney, um, Keir Starmer's uh, campaign director, and uh, Matthew Doyle, his current director of communications, were both involved in Liz Kendall's leadership campaign back then. So, yeah, across the board, you've seen the rise of these more... Cent- you could call... I mean, we need to... I think we should have a podcast on the word Blairite and centrist. But the it's also really interesting because... Uh, reshuffles are as much about the position that politicians get as it is about the broader party hierarchy. So what you're going to see in the future um, are some of these some of these MPs on the right of the party. They're in key position now to get promoted into the shadow cabinet maybe two or three years down the line. It's really important, these junior positions about where people end up uh, a few years on. Um, yeah, I think it's, a, it's an interesting question, this, from the listener, because it's almost this defining argument now that people are having on the left, which is, was Starmer a soft left politician who is moving more centrist or more moderate um, or more right-leaning, depending on on how you define him, in order to get power? Or was he always more of a sort of the Blairite faction and just sort of cosplayed being soft left in order to get elected? And I think people are asking, what's Starmer going to do in office? You know, is he going to revert back to the left? Does he know that the British public, you know, wouldn't vote for a, another left-leaning or soft left leader? But I think, I mean, you touched on this, Freddie, in your great column the other week about what Labour will do in office. And I think you're right. Eventually, Labour will have to either raise taxes or commit to more borrowing. And those are the things that are going to define Starmer and and where he sits ideologically. Um, But what we have seen from this particular reshuffle is obviously it's the March of the Blairites. We're seeing so many old Blairite faces and new um, centrist faces as well. So, for example, Darren Jones, I mean, he's very much kind of the sort of centre managerial. He's um, got good friends in in business. We saw him, um, one of the reasons he's been so impressive is he was chair of the business select committee. And you saw him every week, stick it to Amazon or the post office or whatever. So we have these new faces as well. And Starmer's really setting his stall out as this very sort of centre, centrist Labour Party. Um, And I think that's where he's firmly staying. You know, you've got Pat McFadden up there. He's in charge of campaigns now. This is what Labour's setting out their stall to be. And I can't imagine he'll he'll defer too much from it when he he gets to office, if he gets to office. It's going to be a real challenge, though, because... One of the reasons that Labour are so ahead in the polls isn't actually to do with what the Labour Party is doing at all. It's to do with how the Conservative Party are absolutely imploding. And all of these issues, as we've spoken about before, the key one this week being crumbling concrete in schools, all of these things which were problems from the the early years of the 
13-year conservative government uh, are really, really coming to the fore now. Crumbling public services, public sector pay, the issues in the in healthcare, in, in education, in infrastructure, in sewage, like all of these things. And Labour are being quite successful in looking at the Tories and looking at Rishi Sunak and going, you guys are incompetent. You've let this all fall apart on your watch. And then you get the question, OK, so you're going to fix it right when you get into office. But if you ask them that question, they are very, very reluctant to commit to more spending. You've had Rachel Reeves ruling out all kinds of, of extra tax rises. And OK, there'll be a tax on private schools and there might be a windfall tax on oil and gas. But these are really small numbers compared to the gap in uh, funding for for these sort of crucial services. So Labour, I think, are at risk of painting themselves into a corner where they get elected because the public voters want them to fix all these things, but they get elected having said that they won't raise taxes in order to fix all of those things. And I think in terms of the question, will they move left once in office? They're going to have to have a conversation where they look at the the figures, the finances, and go, okay, we said we weren't going to raise these taxes, but look at our economic situation. We just cannot continue unless we do X, Y, and Z. So I guess my prediction would be that there will be some new economic information that comes to light after the election where Labour say, you know, this is a new situation. It's a new crisis. We have to do these things that we said we weren't going to do because this new thing happened and it won't be a new thing. It will be stuff that we've we've known about for a while, but they will frame it as emergency tax raising powers because that's what the country needs. Whether you can call that moving left or just kind of moving in the only direction that you have, I, I don't know, but I think that's quite likely. I think it's interesting how Labour have responded to the, the rack crisis this week because Monday we, Parliament came back and it was probably one of the worst situations Rishi Sunak could imagine himself to be in. I mean, li- literally the idea of schools falling in on children's heads is probably one of the biggest political nightmares you can, you can have on your first day back of term. Um, and yet Labour decided to proceed with their reshuffle. And I thought it was interesting when various... Um, shadow ministers and, and and people in the Labour Party were asked about how Labour would respond. They were very touchy around whether they would, um, you know, produce more funding or how they would pay for it. And I think you can see from Labour that there's still a lot of hesitancy around pledging money, even for something like crumbling school buildings, which arguably you think the public would be you know, if there was any public spending to be had, they would be in favour of schools being fixed. Um, But Labour have been really cautious on that too. And I think, you know, they're just so afraid of the taxation question because that has traditionally been Labour's downfall, their sticking point. Everyone thinks, you know, Labour's going to raise your taxes. Um, That they've they've stayed quite clear of it. And I think proceeding with the reshuffle, even on a a big news day like that, shows that Labour are still quite hesitant to stick the, the knife in too much when it comes to, you know, people asking them, well, how would you fund this? How would you pay for this? Yeah, I think it was a sign of Keir Starmer's authority and he's very happy to do that regardless of the news agenda. I also think it's not that surprising that Labour won't commit to uh, spending more money because they will definitely have to find a new tax, as you say, Zoe, uh, to pay for that. They don't want to get into that conversation yet, so they're not going to do so. 
in terms of the broader debate about their their fiscal agenda, the key thing that we always have to bang on about on as we do is the fiscal rules. They're not. I mean, we wouldn't expect them to make individual uh, spending commitments week on week until the next election. We need to wait until they have to rethink their whole approach to fiscal spending. Um, and as you say, Rachel, I think that will happen either before the before the election um, or after, as some new economic data or the state of the public finances becomes clear, because it, it, it isn't sustainable. Uh, and there's a contradiction between what they're going to have to do and what they're promising at the moment. Just going back slightly to the the reshuffle, there's some really interesting clues to what Labour might do in terms of Whitehall uh, and government within the reshuffle. Peter Kyle, uh, who was the Shadow Northern Ireland Secretary, he was handed the role of uh, Secretary of State for the Department of Science, Innovation and Technology, uh, which was one of the three departments that Rishi Sunak uh, set up in the earlier in the year. There was lots of conversation within Labour about whether or not uh, Keir Starmer would keep that revert back to the more traditional Whitehall arrangement. The fact that he's given Peter Carl, someone who's reasonably close to him, um, and he's also well liked, by, who was who seen as having done quite a good job in Northern Ireland. The parties there reasonably like him. He's a he's quite a good uh, media performer as well. Giving that quite significant department to him, I think, is a vote of confidence in the fact that. Uh, technology is probably going to form quite a, a core basis of how Labour want to see their policy platform going into the next government. I also think it shows that Keir Starmer takes AI quite seriously. He does want this um, sectioned off as a separate department uh, and have someone dedicated to addressing that. That's something that the, both the government and Labour are um, coalescing around. It's also something that Lucy Powell, who was one of the other contenders for the role, was criticised for. There was she'd been criticised in the past uh, for not having a coherent uh, Labour plan for AI. So I think that's one of the reasons that we're seeing Peter Kyle uh, get promoted to that role. I think that's a really interesting bit of analysis and not something I'd thought of before because I think when we see uh, Starmer and Sunak come head to head at the next election, one of the things they're really going to try and paint Sunak out to be, as in the Conservatives, is very sort of technocratic, very modern, very good at dealing with business, very good at dealing with tech. You know, he's a modern prime minister, whereas Starmer may not be. But Starmer, you know, putting Peter Carl into that position, taking that department seriously, I think he's ready to sort of go predicting that that might be an attack line on him and is ready to kind of go neck and neck on that. So I think it's really interesting and it shows, yeah, that Starmer's probably seeing that that might become quite a big issue at the next election. And the other thing that Labour will try and do and or is already trying to do is painting Sunak as elitist and out of touch. And obviously uh, we've had lots and lots of sort of comments about his swimming pool and his wife's wealth and everything. But I thought there was a really, really savvy attack ad this week on the schools crisis where Labour spotted that Rishi Sunak as Chancellor cut funding for the rebuilding programmes of, of schools in the same spending review that he cut the duty on champagne. Now, in Sunak's defence, he was simplifying alcohol duty across the board and making it sensible in that the, the more alcohol is in a beverage, the, the higher the tax rate is. But he cut the tax on champagne. You've got this Labour ad of someone opening a bottle of champagne, which, by the way, Sunak doesn't drink because he's teetotal, um, but saying that, you know, he, he funded champagne as opposed to schools. And I think you're going to get much more of that um, kind of drawing on Sunak's personal background, but also linking it to decisions that he made as Chancellor. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to send us a question, just go to newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. If you're listening on Spotify, just scroll down on the episode page and leave a reply. And YouTube viewers can drop a question in the comments. 
you can subscribe to our daily politics newsletter Morning Call in the show notes. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Freddie Hayward, and my colleagues, Rachel Cunliffe and Zoe Grunewald. We'll be back tomorrow with our political editor, Andrew Marr, to discuss Crumbling Britain. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.